0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar panel. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This
1: boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it.
0: Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem.
1: It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get
0: there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For November 14th, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. One of the most difficult challenges in energy transition is to decarbonize the industrial sector. Industries like manufacturing, mining, construction, and producing raw materials like cement are all extremely energy intensive. And in many cases, there are simply no good alternatives to using conventional processes based on fossil fuels. But that doesn't mean that businesses engaged in those industries can't find ways to start reducing their own carbon footprints, investing in renewables, investing in research and development into ways of doing more with less, and sharing their knowledge with their peers in order to accelerate the progress of entire industries. In this episode, we talk with a company that might, at first glance, seem like an unlikely one to be pursuing sustainability efforts, but which is establishing itself as a leader in corporate sustainability strategies. Scott Tew is the Executive Director of the Center for Energy Efficiency at Ingersoll Rand, a large manufacturer operating in construction, mining, industrial, and commercial markets. Scott has helped modernize Ingersoll Rand by focusing on sustainability and updating their strategy to meet their customers' needs. Essentially, Ingersoll Rand is approaching renewable energy as a business opportunity, doing things like switching to solar-powered commercial trucks and transport because it saves them money as well as reduces their carbon footprint. Scott has deep insight into how the company integrated sustainability and came to see renewable energy as a key business opportunity and why it's a winning strategy for any company. As with Episode 80, this one has an explicit focus on a commercial enterprise, but rest assured that we have not accepted any sponsorship or support of any kind from Ingersoll Rand, nor deviated from our promise to deliver a strictly non-commercial podcast. Based on our listeners' feedback to Episode 80, we felt that this episode was a worthy addition to the topics we cover on the show, because it demonstrates how energy transition is possible even in the incredibly difficult industrial sector. And not to worry, we'll be back to the super geeky academic stuff soon enough. Then, in the new segment of this episode, we'll have a look at the new IPCC report on limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C, we'll congratulate William Nordhaus on his Nobel for Economics, we'll resolve the cliffhanger at the end of Episode 79 and consider the implications of the CPUC's ruling on exit fees for CCA customers, we'll note a significant investment in EV charging stations in Florida, and we'll consider the energy transition implications of the midterm elections in the U.S., But first, our conversation with Scott Tu recorded September 9th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Scott, to the Energy Transition Show.
1: Thanks, Chris. Glad to join you.
0: As the executive director of the Center for Energy Efficiency at Ingersoll Rand, you've led the company's efforts to focus on sustainability and energy efficiency. And at first glance, that seems a bit of an unlikely business focus for (laughs) a nearly 150-year-old company that got started by making rock drills for mining and that currently has a $25 billion market cap and is still operating in construction and mining, industrial and commercial markets. So what's the business case for Ingersoll Rand to be investing in renewable energy?
1: That's a great question, Chris. So You're right. Almost 150 years. Uh, company with a long history of helping herald the industrial age with things like the rock drill and jackhammers. And now a company that produces still those legacy products with pneumatic tools and systems. We also have a series of products like Club Car, the electric vehicle company, and Thermal King, the transport refrigeration firm, as well as train air conditioning and Your question about what is the business case for moving into renewable energy, for us, it was really about a commitment that we made in 2014, a global commitment around reducing our greenhouse gas footprint. And we really set a high bar for ourselves, and we believe for the entire industrial sector, our global climate commitment was focused across all three of the scopes, both our indirect and direct greenhouse gas footprint. So it not only included our operations, but also our products. And so we've been working towards that. And with that as your North Star, that really has given a great push inside the company for our employees to be more innovative about how we develop products. But also, it's made us focus on all the other avenues to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint. And one of those avenues and tools has been a move towards renewable energy.
0: And so what is the business case for renewable energy for a company like yours?
1: Well, I think that the business case is several things. One is there is a financial case for it. There is a return on investment. We believe it can be financially favorable to a company, and we're seeing that already, whether we're talking on-site or off-site. I think also the business case directly relates to things like I just mentioned, public commitments, where you have a commitment from all levels within the organization, from the CEO on down to doing whatever is necessary to move in a way that decarbonizes your value stream. And that was one of our drivers. And then I think the third piece is what I would call resilience. Really, it's about reducing risk. It's about ensuring supply. And it's about ensuring that you're doing whatever it takes on your side to reduce your demand. So it's a very holistic approach. And I think the business case itself is found among all of those factors for a company like ours.
0: Well, that makes sense. So, if renewables are now generally cost competitive, why aren't more companies making their own energy transitions and trying to buy renewable power? I mean, to be sure, there are quite a few companies globally which have declared their intentions to buy renewable electricity. The RE100 Global Initiative lists over 100 companies that have committed to 100% renewable electricity, for example. But on the other hand, most of them are tech and finance and insurance companies you know, it's white collar stuff. They're not manufacturers like Ingersoll Rand. So
1: why do you think that is? I think it's difficult. It's difficult, especially to get the first deal. And I think this entire renewable investments area is still complicated. And so I think until a company gets the first deal, there will be some complications they have to work through because the business case has to be made across several functional areas. I mean, there's some technical accounting that has to happen. You have to have a clear view of paybacks and incentives across regions, especially if you're a global company with a global footprint. I think that's why it's really critical that you do at least two things. One is you have to have everybody at the table from the very beginning inside the company that needs to be there, whether we're talking the treasury, your operations team, the legal team, your environmental health and safety team, representatives from the CFO's office, If you have in house expertise and energy, you've got to have those people at the team. So I think engaging everyone, all those stakeholders from the beginning is critical. And the second piece is you really have to understand the challenges. And the best way to understand the challenges in our experience was to benchmark really well with those who've gone before us some of their learnings, understand where the pitfalls are, and have a really good advisor if you can't do this internally. So those are the two major steps and It takes time. It's complicated, but I think we understand how to do it as a medium-sized industrial, and I think some of our learnings could be shared, and we've been sharing them with others, because I think the more companies that find a way to do this, then I think we'll see more and more companies come on board in the renewable space and overcome the complications.
0: So, I'm hearing that it's important for companies to share information with each other, especially in a similar tier of company or a similar industry, so they can learn from each other, especially for the ones that are just getting started. So, if a company decides that it wants to increase its procurement of renewable power, how exactly should they go about that? You know, especially if they don't have on staff like power procurement specialists and that sort of thing. Are there any important do's and don'ts that potential buyers should think
1: about? Yeah, we've had some learnings, Chris, in this space. And by the way, it took us about 15 or 16 months to to finally sign off on the move forward plan because and some of our learnings were related to your question. The first thing we did actually was start with a benchmark. I think you have to have some type of plan for reductions overall and where renewables can have an impact. For us, it was always first, how efficient can we make our operations by doing things like upgrading facilities and changing out lighting to LED and other areas that can lead to efficiencies. And then secondly, you then begin to understand where renewables might make an impact. The second piece is what I mentioned earlier, which is gathering all of the right internal stakeholders, several functional areas, including things like treasury and operations and legal and other groups who will play an important role in making decisions around renewables. And then I think one of our third learnings was around just not taking on too much too quickly. I think that some of this is a bit daunting. It's complicated. So we learned quickly to break our plan down into some manageable projects and make sure that we were seeing the right results before we began to move in a bigger way around renewables. So those were three things that we learned early on that made a huge impact in us being comfortable with moving that way.
0: Interesting. So you got to have these internal champions within the company to really agitate and push the company forward to buy renewables and to get support across these different departments and so on. Is it also important to have the C-suite involved? I mean, do the internal champions have to convince the COO and the CEO and the CFO to get on board, or, or does it oftentimes start with the C-suite and work its way down?
1: <laughs> well, I think that it probably works easier and faster if the CEO or the CFO are committed to reducing your energy footprint overall. Yeah, That was our case. I do think it can work the other way where that internal group of stakeholders who are typically broad and at many times at high levels in the organization, they can work together to convince the C-suite that this makes financial sense, that it's doable, that it's positive for the enterprise. So. I think it can go either way. For us, it happened to be the CEO was committed to reducing our environmental footprint, our greenhouse gas footprint, and he understood from the beginning that there were many levers and options for us to do that. The first one, as I mentioned earlier, was reducing our own energy consumption via energy efficiency initiatives at our operations and sites, and then renewables came into play after we had gone down the path of making sure we were becoming more efficient as an enterprise.
0: Interesting. So, you know, beyond just simply buying renewable power, what else should, you know, a company's strategy to reduce their energy footprint include? Like, are you trying to tackle things like energy productivity, efficiency, that sort of thing?
1: I believe energy efficiency should always be the first step. I think focusing on how to make your existing facilities as efficient as possible is the first step. Whether that means upgrading your HVAC systems, which typically represent up to 40 percent of the energy load. Could be upgrading your lighting systems, could be installing building control systems that help automate some of the energy use in the building and provide management with new insights. I think all those are first steps and extremely important for reaching a new level of efficiency. You mentioned energy productivity, that's a term I think is important to this whole role that energy productivity plays. I think, is it possible for companies to decouple their energy use from their productivity? I think that's absolutely possible. We've demonstrated that ourselves. We've become more efficient over time as our revenues and number of products going out the door have increased. So it is possible, but it does take deliberations. It takes some deliberate plans. It takes having all those stakeholders In the room, and it also takes focus, and I think you, once again, have to make sure that you're taking it one step at a time to get there.
0: Well, you know, we've had several guests on this show who are working in those areas, including Sarah Bell of Tempest Energy in Episode 60, who is working with buildings and corporate clients to essentially understand when the best time is to consume electricity and when to avoid it and how to really optimize their consumption that way. Robin Beavers of Blueprint Power in episode 77, working on intelligent buildings. Pierre Lafarge of Spark Fund in episode 80, working on finance mechanisms and sort of energy as a service, specifically figuring out better ways to buy and pay for HVAC. And although I think these are all working on very exciting technologies and business models... It also seems to me that in many ways, they have to overcome the kinds of hurdles that any new company or business has to overcome, like selling their services one customer at a time, maybe even in a fairly bespoke fashion, and for that matter, just creating awareness for their services with companies like yours. So how do we get these technologies and services to scale with corporate buyers?
1: It's a fair question. I think I'll be a bit provocative here and just say I'm not sure that we have to wait around on startups and new technologies to to move to the next level and to move to scale. I think some of the innovations that startups can bring to us can really help and supplement some of the existing technologies. But I really think we have technologies and systems solutions in place today that are at scale. I think they're just being underutilized that can help us get to a more... Whether we're talking a single company, a single site, you know, I think things exist today that can help us get there. Whether we're talking about building control systems, whether we're talking about analytics, whether we're talking about systems, mechanical systems, I think we have what we need today to certainly move to a new level of efficiency and productivity. It's just way underutilized for a variety of reasons.
0: So how do we animate that, <laughs> get it moving a little faster, right? I mean, I mean, you have to believe that the vendors out there selling these products and services yep. are doing everything they can to get business going, right? Yep. So uh, at some level, it's got to be incumbent on the internal people at the company. I don't know if it's your facilities people or if it's all just being driven by the bottom line or what to – actively go out and look for these new solutions and look for new ways to reduce their energy footprint and increase their energy productivity. Okay. I have to wonder like where's the impetus to make that happen internally?
1: I think we're creatures of habit until the priorities shift, then our behavior doesn't. And so I think that's the same for companies. You know, when a company decides to rearrange its priorities and focus on like Ingersoll Rand did, reducing its greenhouse gas footprint, then you get the same behaviors, and it's probably the same for any company whether we're talking facility managers or senior leaders or people that work in the plants, I think until priorities shift, and typically priorities shift for a variety of reasons, it's so a new financial incentive. Management decides that it's going to get more serious about committing to reducing its footprint. Maybe there's a new financial model. Maybe there's a priority shift to to enhance the reputation or reduce risk. But you, have, you first have to have priority shift. And it's not just about some shiny new technology that gets us there.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year, or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artistic podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On October 10th, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, published its long-awaited special report on what would be required to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius and how different the climate impacts would be if the world were to see two degrees of warming. The energy and climate communities recognized and discussed the report at length, naturally, but it received modest coverage in the mainstream media. For my own part, I read the top-line findings and decided that we had already covered everything of interest to this show's audience in our 10-part miniseries on climate science, as well as other episodes on topics like deep decarbonization pathways. The new report shows that negative emissions technologies like carbon capture and sequestration, or CCS, will be needed to meet the 1.5-degree target, especially for hard-to-decarbonize sectors, but that those technologies also have difficult and institutional barriers that will make them hard to scale up. But it also shows that a heavy emphasis on energy efficiency and behavioral change can limit the need for negative emissions technologies, as we discussed at length in Episode 74. And it explains that the integrated assessment model pathways on which the report is based only explore what is thought to be technically feasible, not what is socially, environmentally, politically, or institutionally feasible. So, reluctantly, I concluded that there really wasn't a new angle here worthy of another episode of this podcast. We already know what the key methods of energy transition are. We just need to get busy doing them. Item 2. The day before the IPCC report was released, Yale economist William Nordhaus won the 2018 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for his four decades of work on how economics can support investments in climate change. Nordhaus argued for taxes as a way to address pollution. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Bernfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.